And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. If you live anywhere in the Midwest, you don't need to be told that we're in the midst of a fairly serious drought. But at least the drought has not been accompanied, for the most part, by oppressively high temperatures. Certainly nothing as serious as the catastrophic heat wave that struck the upper Midwest in the summer of 1995. A specially hard hit was the city of Chicago, which saw daytime temperatures rising to 105, even 106 degrees over the course of an entire week, and heat indexes rising as high as 126 degrees. It is estimated that some 700 people died due to these oppressively hot conditions. A sociology professor at New York University, Dr. Eric Kleinenberg, did extensive study of the heat wave. He was curious in particular to know why the death rates were particularly high with certain demographic groups, with certain segments of the populace, and in certain parts of the city. The result of his research was a fascinating book called Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. The book was initially published in 2002 and republished in a new edition in 2014. I spoke to Dr. Kleinenberg back in 2002, not long before he came to the campus of Carthage College to talk about his research. Tell us about your your study in the in the field of sociology. I think for a, a lot of people, even for those of us who have maybe taken a single sociology course, we don't necessarily understand the field. If you could just briefly give us a sense of what a sociologist studies and then how that intersects with an event like the heat wave of 1995, I think that will be a, a helpful precursor to our discussion. Sure. Well, given the topic of today's discussion, the, the heat wave of 1995, maybe the best way to introduce sociology is to make kind of analogy to meteorology. We think about the kind of attention we pay to the weather every day in our lives, you know, reading newspapers, looking at the, at the weather maps as they come across the, the day, watching television, there's these long meteorology reports. We've actually developed quite precise technologies for pinpointing the ways in which different weather patterns affect our lives and for identifying variations in one storm system, one warm day, and another. You know, we're, we're, we're quite expert at that. In a way, one way of thinking of sociology is it's an an effort, a scholarly effort, to come up with the same kinds of precise evaluations, diagnoses of the social factors that influence the context of our lives as well. Um, sociologists want to understand the environment, the social environment, and the way in which they shape all of us as individuals, the range of choices we have to make as collective groups. And it's, of course, a, a very sweeping endeavor with many fields to it. But in, in this particular project, I set out to conduct what I call a, a social autopsy. That's part of the subtitle. And the reason for that is when we conventionally hear about a disaster, especially a disaster related to weather, we tend to think of the causes in purely meteorological terms. How hot was it? How human was it? And why did those conditions cause so many deaths? Well, what was so interesting about the great Chicago disaster of 1995 and as well, is that the death rate was actually several times higher than the rate that meteorologists and health scientists would have predicted. In other words, their, their climatic models 
did not explain the trauma that Chicago experienced, and I should say also the Milwaukee experienced in, in 1995. And what became clear is that if you wanted to understand this incredible disaster, and we're talking about more than 700 people in Chicago dying in a week and almost 100 in, in Milwaukee, you couldn't just look at the weather. You also had to do a, a kind of social analysis. So just like a meteorologist armed with all of this equipment, um, I went out and spent five years in the city of Chicago looking at the social and the institutional reasons that the, the metropolis broke down. One of the things that was interesting to me was, uh, as you described, how you yourself found out about the heat wave of 1995. Tell our listeners about that. It's an amazing story because I was actually not living in Chicago at the time. I was away for the summer with, with family in, in Paris, and, and I was living in the sixth floor walk-up apartment of a cousin of mine with no air conditioning. And Paris was in the midst of a very hot summer as well. And, you know, I had a kind of morning ritual where I'd read the, the international newspaper, and I picked it up one day, and I started reading these stories about Chicago and hundreds, several hundred people dying in a heat wave, and it's difficult to understand how this could be happening. And so, you know, I got very intrigued. There, there certainly were not similar reports of high heat deaths Paris or in the other European cities uh, where, where I had visited that summer, and I wanted to understand kind of why in Chicago. So, so I came back home not long after, and the most puzzling thing happened. Uh, I started talking to friends and family members, uh, people who read the news and are up on what's happening in the city, and they, on the one hand, told me stories about incredible catastrophe. Uh, so many people had died that there were nine or ten 50-foot-long refrigerated heat-packing trucks in the center of the city at the morgue, storing all of the dead bodies and this incredible spectacle made the front page of newspapers and led all the television shows for a week, and everyone remembered that very well. But on the other hand, they also said things like, well, we're not sure that that many people really died. Maybe this event wasn't really real. That was a strange term that kept recurring, really real. Uh, they wondered if the you know, if the figures had been propped up somehow by the by journalists, or many people alluded to a debate between the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Daly, and the medical examiner, Ed Donahue, because when the medical examiner started to issue his autopsy report, the mayor challenged their scientific credibility and said, you know, maybe these are just regular people who happen to be dying in the summer. And so, in fact, what, what, what was left in Chicago was this legacy of Maybe this was not a, a, a real event. And I couldn't quite understand how it was possible to have that scene at the medical examiner's office or the 700-plus the, the dead in the week and, and still a very difficult uh, time comprehending it in the city. And I should say, just to be clear, that there, there are two different ways to understand heat-related mortality. Um, one of them is to do a, a physical investigation of, of every case. You can do a medical autopsy of a body that's brought in or a, a, a police report from a place where a victim is discovered. And according to those measures, there were about 500 heat-related deaths during uh, this week from July 14th to, to July 20th, a little bit under 500. But the problem with a, a measure like that is that when you have a city that's as large and sweeping as Chicago, it's inevitable that you won't be able to autopsy everybody 
and you won't get a police report on, on every key case. And so what happens is a lot of bodies get buried before they're documented in this way. Um, and health scholars know that it's inevitable that you'll, you'll miss a lot of cases, especially in a place that's as large as Chicago. So, so what epidemiologists do to really understand the, the death toll from a heat wave is they look at what they call the excess death rate. And the way they do that is they, they figure out what the typical number of deaths would be in a week. So in Chicago, on a regular day in July, about 72 people will die. And that means there will be about 500 deaths in a, in a regular week of July. Well, this week in Chicago, 1,243 people died. That gives us an excess death figure of 739. And there weren't any other major traumas or accidents that would produce that spike. So that's how we get this number of 739. And, and it's now been you know, settled by all the scientists who worked on the story that, that in fact, there were 739 deaths in Chicago in excess of the norm during the week. And I couldn't be satisfied with the accounts that were available. The, I, I was unsettled by the skepticism, and the journalistic reporting on the event was partial. It never probed as deeply as I would like, and so that you know, kind of meant that someone had to come in and really tell this story and tell it as a, as a great social drama that helps us to understand who we are as a society today. That this would come about. I liked how in uh, your, your first chapter where you describe the, the events and then the skepticism which you, uh, which you discovered, you talked about um, people who had lived through the heat wave had both absorbed the magnitude of the disaster and blocked out its significance and implications. Something about the event had rendered it unintelligible or inexplicable. It was interesting to me, too. I don't remember as you recounted uh, your initial reaction to this, if you said this, but uh, you noticed when you were uh, in California in uh, August of 1995, so shortly after this heat wave had occurred, it was like you were still in another country in terms of the, the effect which this catastrophe had on the citizens of California. They couldn't have cared less, and it didn't seem to matter to them one bit. Well, we have to place this in context, right? This is uh, the middle of the 1990s, the, the real boom year in the American economy, particularly in the Bay Area, uh, where, where I had moved. And people had their minds on other matters. They were living the high life. Uh, and many people in Chicago were doing the same thing. Uh, what was so strange about this, Greg, and what continues to be strange about the story to me, is the collective incapacity to come to terms and to recognize what happened in Chicago and in other places around the Midwest this week. Think about it. More than 700 people died in the city during that week. And, and they didn't just die. They, they actually, in, the, in most cases, died alone. They were oftentimes discovered in their apartments, in their homes, with windows closed, with the doors locked or double locked, oftentimes several days after they died. Really um, horrific, horrific patterns of, of mortality that tell us something about the, the way that, that we live, the, the nature of isolation hmm. in American cities today. And, and I suppose what, our uh, skepticism about it, that tells us something about us as well. Well, I think that's right. I think it's, it's been very difficult for many people in the United States to come to terms with the fact that so many other Americans live in this fashion and are susceptible to something that's seemingly benign as the heat, because I think also for most people, 
avoiding the dangers of a heat wave is fairly simple. You go home and you flip on your air conditioner. You get in your car, you turn on your air conditioner. Uh, there, there are a lot of very simple survival strategies. Um, but there are a lot of people in the United States for whom that's not a realistic option. And particularly there are people who are living in neighborhoods. You know, we should talk about this later where they're, they're reluctant to, to, to go outside in part because there, there are no real resources drawing them out into the streets. There aren't big stores, and there's certainly not a hospitable social environment that makes them want to be, you know, out in public with other people and kind of foster seclusion. But this, this big issue that you're touching on, I think, is one for all of us to think about, and it's the question of how we recognize and understand the kinds of, of living conditions that are rampant in American cities today. And, it, and what I argue in, in Heat Wave, the, the book, is that, in a way, we have a kind of will not to know about stories like this. We're much more interested in looking at a spectacular photograph of a tornado sweeping across the plains or of watching a news report of a hurricane threatening coastal property than we are at really coming to terms with um, the nature of, of this kind of social deprivation and the way in which it can be deadly in an event like the heat wave. And so it turns out that heat waves actually kill more Americans than all of the other natural disasters combined. And they have for many, many years, yet you would never know that from from looking at most media because they're not covered in the same way. You talk about heat waves being slow, silent, and invisible killers. I suppose that's a a big part of, of that obscurity. That's right, and the, and, the, and the rest of that sentence is of silent and invisible people. Um, and I think that's crucial. It's a, it's a combination of those elements. And, and you know, I'd ask your you know, listeners or our listeners to, to pause and think about this for a minute. If you close your eyes and try to picture a heat wave, you know, what do you see? It's very difficult to, to get an image of the heat. You can't see heat the way that you see a tornado or a hurricane or the aftermath of an earthquake or, or a flood. Most people, when they think of a heat wave, can come up with an image of kids playing in water or something like that. But you know, heat waves don't get um, front-page news attention or the you know, lead story in television oftentimes because they, they don't have that visible element to it. In fact, you know, I was scheduled to do a big story on the Weather Channel last week on the on the anniversary of the, of the heat wave, and we decided to, to move it because there was this hurricane, Claudette, tropical storm Claudette, that might become a hurricane moving up up into the Gulf of Mexico. And the meteorologists were very certain that it wouldn't be too destructive and that very few people were actually at risk. But it makes such dramatic television that the story of this kind of non-meteorological event you know, out, outweighed the, the story of more than 700 people dying in the heat. So part of the issue here is that they... Heat waves are slow and silent and invisible, and that makes them less uh, camera-ready than other storms. But the other thing that's mm-hmm. really crucial is that the victims of heat waves tend to be silent and invisible themselves, because the people who die in heat waves tend to be and poor and to live in the kind of abandoned neighborhoods in cities that have lost a lot of their population. And they're not people who are typically in the news, and so it's no surprise that their deaths are not really covered either. You make an interesting comparison at one point in the book with uh, 
a, a disastrous blizzard uh, in Chicago. I don't remember the year now. Yes, the blizzard of 1979. Right. And uh, one of the distinctions, you, you draw a couple of interesting comparisons. One of them was that uh, the city of Chicago, apparently in the wake of that, of that blizzard, did a very, very poor job with, with public relations. And so uh, the, the city government was really left shouldering the blame, and the incumbent mayor was, was trounced. Uh, well, that was Jane Byrne, wasn't it? Uh, it's actually uh, Michael Blandick and Jane Byrne rose into the mayor position because of that. Right. Uh, so that was one, one distinction. But another which you mention in your book is that that blizzard of 79 was actually more of a universal uh, calamity in that that blizzard affected everybody, including, you know, high-flying high um, members of society, professionals who couldn't get in or out of the loop to conduct their business. It affected everybody, including the affluent. And uh, whereas the heat wave, although it was hot for everybody, uh, the victims were uh, the poor, uh, by and large, the elderly, those that uh, are not at the center of our political concerns. That's right. And, and you know, what you're saying kind of calls into question our, our social imagination and the way in which we're able to generate sympathy or empathy, a kind of deep understanding for the experience of others. It's clear that a blizzard is a more universal disaster in the sense that when it snows so heavily in the Midwest, we know all too well, um, all of us are affected in one way or another. We might not be able to get to work on time. The roads might be closed. We might have to spend a lot of time shoveling up the, the sidewalk in front of us. Uh, you know, we, we see it very visibly. Um, traffic is, is delayed. Airports oftentimes shut down. Uh, business doesn't work as usual. But like I said before, heat waves pinpoint the most vulnerable people and the most affluent people have a pretty easy time avoiding the dangers of the heat. And so city officials, reporters, most of us uh, might be experiencing a lot of air-conditioned comfort during a tough week in summer, finding it hard to believe that environment can be quite so dangerous. And you know, that's, a, you know, that's a, a, a big obstacle to getting us to, to think the danger of heat waves. And, and in part, the, the heat wave book is written as this kind of dramatic story, uh, almost like a detective story, trying to puzzle out what happened and why it happened, in order to show to readers that there, there really is something incredible here. There is something that's worth paying attention to, and that the human drama uh, will help us gain a deeper understanding for, for who we are and the way that we live in cities today. We're speaking with Eric Kleinenberg. His book is Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. Uh, Professor Kleinenberg, I want to take a, a few minutes to, to just talk about some of these facets which you focus on a little more specifically. One of them is quite interesting in Chapter 1. You focus on the, the, the simple and sometimes heartbreaking experience of dying alone and that, by and large, the vast majority of people who perished in the heat wave of 1995 in Chicago died alone. And that is not an inconsequential factor, although it is something that very easily sort of slips right past us, its significance does anyway. I think that's right, and this is clearly one of the most disturbing elements of, of the story. 
stories that he lived that so many of the victims were discovered alone in, in their apartments. And it turns out that the, one of the big reasons that happened is that, in fact, more Americans are living alone and dying alone than ever before in our national history. We, we have in the United States an incredible emergence of, of people on their own, and not just younger professionals who make enough money now so they don't have to live with their parents, although that's, that's part of the story, you know, young people living on their own, but also the emergence of older people, 65 and above, 85 and above, the very old people who have survived, who've in many cases outlived their spouses, and in the worst cases, outlived their social networks as well. Um, we have achieved so much technologically in terms of medical science that we're able to expand the, the, the life course. Um, unfortunately, we haven't found ways to make life meaningful and to provide reliable systems of care and support for people who age. And this is a, a major crisis and one that also is not spoken of very often in American society. Uh, although, if we think about it, most of, most people would have to deal with this issue of having a, a parent or a relative age alone at, at some point in their lives. And we have not collectively thought of, of ways to manage this. Now, for middle-class and affluent families, there are several solutions available to this, particularly if the living complexes, kind of nicer nursing homes if necessary, places where uh, one can have a, a family member living alone and feel some degree of certainty that they'll be well taken care of. But for poorer people in the United States, aging alone is a, a real difficulty because oftentimes difficult or undesirable either to the family or to the person alone to have that person move in with the rest of the family. And a decent place with assistance and social services and care is, is unaffordable. And so there are major crises where people live on their own and insist on, on being independent, but realistically are, are, are not in reasonable living conditions. I and, appreciated, uh, if I may just jump yeah. in, I appreciated the, the distinctions you drew between uh, living alone, being isolated, being reclusive, being lonely. It's interesting how we can sometimes group all those things together uh, sort of thoughtlessly, and those are important distinctions uh uh, to make because it probably has some effect on how vulnerable someone is going to be in the midst of something like a heat wave. That's right. And we remember earlier in the discussion we talked about the way meteorologists have the precise technology of differentiating one storm from another. You know, we you know the different colors that we see on the television screen as the weather moves across the country. Well, sociologists do something very similar trying to understand different social conditions, right? And, and so what, what I make very clear in, in heat wave is that just living alone is, is different from, from being lonely, for example, the subjective feeling that you're, you don't have the, the company you need, that you're on your own in life. In fact, people can feel lonely if, even when they're living in big families um, and surrounded by people all the time. And that's also very different from, from being reclusive, which is the state of being alone and, and not going outside of, of your home, not having a, a large pool of, of, of social connections friends and family who are around you. And, and that's what proved to be really crucial during the heat wave. It, it turns out that the people who were most at risk were not just people who were living alone, although they were at a greater rate of risk, 
but also people who lived alone and did not have a large number of social contacts, who were relatively isolated, who did not regularly leave their apartment, who didn't have access to good transportation. These are people for whom the dangers of heat waves are severe. And it might not be a surprise when you think about it that people in those conditions tend to be concentrated in the most depopulated and impoverished and violent neighborhoods in cities. You talk at one point about the culture of fear. That's right. And uh, what a a crucial element that was in all of this. In fact, you, you talk of how during the heat wave many Chicago senior citizens refused to open their doors or respond to volunteers and city workers at the point when when, thing, when the severity of this was finally realized and people were going door-to-door trying to find these uh, highly vulnerable, isolated seniors, they were afraid to open their door to strangers. And well, there were certainly some cases like that, although the, the, the claim that they were turning away many people at the door was one made by the city in the aftermath of the event, and it was there are many people who are skeptical of whether the city had, in fact, sent that many people out to do the door-to-door check at the time. Um, but, the, but the broader point is that it, it did happen in some cases. And part of the reason it, it happens is it's not, uh, as the city argued, because people who are most in need of help are, are least likely to want it. It's rather that uh, the, the city does not necessarily understand the everyday living conditions of people who are on their own in this way. And, and I, I write in the book about how this culture of fear can be particularly concentrated for, for people who live alone. Their older people are oftentimes preyed on, not just by people who, who live around them um, and know that they're, they're vulnerable, but also by people who knock on the door trying to sell them things, um, and in a way by a, a kind of uh, a media industry that depends on these images of and stories of, of violent crime uh, as it's kind of bread and butter. And in fact, people who live on their own, and older people in particular, are among the great consumers of television shows, and of, particularly of the kind of local television news that always gives us uh, the crime stories that, that lead if they bleed. And so they're the people, in many respects, who have this kind of insecurity that affects them every day. But it's important to stress that that, that insecurity is especially acute in places where it's appropriate. In other words, in the neighborhoods that have the highest rates of, of concentrated poverty and concentrated crime. So if you, if you look at um, the neighborhoods with the, the high violent crime rates in Chicago, they also had high heat wave death rates. And the reason is that people living there develop a kind of practical knowledge that it's unwise to, to spend too much time in public unless it's necessary. Uh, and furthermore... Those tend to be neighborhoods that, as I said before, that don't have things like the big grocery stores, the viable commercial streets, the space parks that, that bring people out of their homes and out into public where, where they develop social ties. Mm. So one of the things that a social autopsy can do, that a, a medical autopsy can never do simply by, by opening up a body, is to, to explore and uncover some of the, the relationships between social factors and the outcome of a, of a heat wave. One thing you did was uh, take us back to uh, an earlier heat wave. Was it 1964? Am I remembering that correctly? You're talking about the image of people sleeping in the park. Right. That uh, it, in, a, in a heat wave, which was, I, I don't think by any means, as serious as the one in 1995, but a heat wave nonetheless, 
uh, you had this image of people at night uh, sleeping out on park benches and so on, and not not vagrants. I mean, people who had their own places to sleep, but in in order to keep cooler. Uh, well, were... Thinking about that image really helped us to uh, to understand the notion of a culture of fear, right? Um, that people would not think about doing that in this day and age. That's exactly right. And, you know, people in Chicago speak about that time almost kind of mythologically, that, well, you know, it used to be that when it got very hot out, we would all go outside to the park, you know, with, our, with some sheets and water and spend the night out there. And so I'd say to them, you know, well, why don't you do that today? And they'd laugh at me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially in the, in the most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago where you absolutely are not going to spend the night in the park. But it's not just for safety reasons. In fact, we've, we've criminalized, you know, sleeping outdoors, sleeping <laughs> in public. Uh, it's illegal in many places to not sleep in your home. If you're sleeping on the street, if you're sleeping in a public place, if you're sleeping on a bench, uh, you're breaking the law. Um, so this is a, a, another way which I think in the United States we've worked very hard to, to put out of sight uh, a whole realm of experience that's in fact quite common, but that's you know, somewhat difficult and by that I mean the, the trend of, of criminalizing people sleeping outdoors, particularly poor people sleeping outdoors, is related to this collective disinterest we have in really looking at, um, coming to terms with the, the suffering, the inequality, the deprivation that continues to be right in front of us. One of the other facets of the, the heat wave that is so interesting is that we not only see a, a preponderance of isolated elderly victims among those who died, but there are also very interesting distinctions that can be drawn in terms of different uh, racial groups uh, that were hit harder than, than another group might have been, even though a lot of these other factors like uh, age and isolation and so on uh, might be relatively similar. That's uh, right. on, on this issue, we have to be very careful a little bit complicated, but here's another area where I think sociology really helps us to, to understand stories uh, that might not otherwise make too much sense. If you look at the overall number of deaths in Chicago, you find a, a couple of intriguing patterns. First of all, uh, there are almost identical numbers of, of black and white deaths in terms of the, the overall numbers. Um, very small number of Latino deaths. And one thing that was very striking about the heat wave is that Latinos in Chicago represent about 25 of the population, and they accounted for only 2% of the total heat-related mortality. That's pretty surprising, given that Latinos are more likely to be be poor and living in some of these difficult neighborhoods than than other groups. So that was one big question, why was the Latino death rate so low? But if you look more closely at the black-white distribution of death, you you also find that the story gets more, more intriguing, because although the overall number was the same, in fact, there are far fewer older African-Americans than older whites in Chicago. There's a, a larger young African-American population. And that means that, that, that blacks were, were not as represented in the people who were at risk, most at risk of dying. And, and what that means is that you would have expected to have a lower black death rate than you had. And in fact, when you do a very simple thing that, that we do called an age adjustment, which is kind of standardized the, the age distribution, you find that, that blacks had by far the highest death rate, and we're most vulnerable to the heat in Chicago. Now, there isn't a very simple story about race and vulnerability to tell here, though, and the reason is if you look at the, the 10 neighborhoods in Chicago that have the lowest death rate, 
during the week, but the lowest mortality during the heat wave, you find something amazing. Five of the areas are entirely white. Two of the areas are almost entirely Latino. But three of the are entirely African-American. And that means that you know, it's not just a story about race. You have to look more deeply. And, and when you do it, the neighborhoods that were really vulnerable, that were most at risk, were not simply mostly African-American. They were also abandoned. They were neighborhoods that had been depleted, depopulated, places that had you know, 120,000 residents in 1960 uh, and about 45,000, 50,000 residents in 2000, places that dramatically lost their population. And with them, all of the kind of street-level activity that promotes and facilitates social life and keeps people connected to one another. So the reason, the big reason for the large African-American death rate is that blacks in Chicago are most likely to be living in these areas of concentrated poverty and deprivation and also depopulation uh, that are, are at such great risk. And at the same time, we know the reason Latinos had such a low rate of mortality is because Latinos in Chicago live in the areas that are most heavily populated. Oftentimes, they're too densely populated, and that creates problems. But what it means is that people are kind of living on top of one another and are in very close contact. It's very difficult to die alone in a Latino neighborhood in Chicago today simply because there's such a robust social life. We're speaking with uh, Eric Kleinenberg about his book called Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. Uh, Professor Kleinenberg visited the campus of Carthage College uh, this past spring. I read with great fascination your your chapter called The State of Disaster, uh, in which you try to uh, examine for us uh, the response of various city services to this uh, disaster as it unfolded. You had a number of interesting observations to make, and, and one of them I, I think really bears repeating because it, it, it's applicable to all kinds of different situations. That, that you, you said that fire and police departments often are the first to see an emergent crisis, and they face the challenge then of not only dealing with the people that are suffering from whatever has occurred, but also of trying to convince those above them, higher-ranking officials and so on, that there is a problem here that requires some sort of sweeping uh, response. And certainly the Chicago heat wave plays out very much in that fashion. That's right. Uh, the particular difficulty in, in this case is that the paramedics who are operated by the, by the fire department were totally overwhelmed by the number of calls for emergency help, and they didn't have the staff or the number of ambulances that they needed to provide care for the thousands of Chicagoans who came ill during this week. The, the hospitals were so busy that they closed down their emergency rooms. More than 20 cases, almost half of the city's hospitals had to close their emergency rooms during the week. And what happened is that a number of the paramedics were, were calling out from the field saying, you know, we need backup. We need additional staff. We need to get more ambulances out here. And the city has a system for, for doing all of that, for providing that. But for some reason, some of the higher-ups the fire department and also in the city government, uh, you know, were reluctant to provide that additional support. And it meant that the city did not bring in more paramedics, more ambulances, until it was too late. Um, and clearly one of the issues here is the, the lines of communication between these different departments. 
uh, were, were not particularly effective. In fact, we saw something very similar in, in, on September 11th in New York, that the communication difficulties meant that the city did not respond in all the ways that it might have. And in the case of, of New York, it meant that, that city employees were more vulnerable than they otherwise might have been. Now, no one should uh, make the argument that, that the government in Chicago is you know, responsible for all the deaths that week. That would be a totally off-base claim. But the city government in Chicago could have done far more to prevent people from dying and to help those people who were suffering than it actually did. And the, the city's incredulity of, about the event, their in, in, incapacity or unwillingness to take seriously the reports about death and illness in, in, in the worst parts of, of Chicago meant that this catastrophe was far greater than it, it had to be. And clearly it, it, it suggests that um, city government officials need to be in better touch with the, the lived experience of, of being in the most vulnerable places in the city. We learn a lot about politics through the course of this book. At one point you talk about um, the politics of of tolerating deprivation, uh, the political will to tolerate deprivation that that is is in place. You also talk at one point about uh, the politics of of public relations and uh, and how that played heavily here. I found helpful what you talked about in terms of the city administration uh, engaging in a in a campaign to deny, deflect, and defend. Uh, in, in the wake of this disaster, it, it's probably helpful for us to understand a little better uh, the complex and sometimes sort of shady business of PR in a situation like this. That's right. I think you know, there's a chapter in the book called Governing by Public Relations, which we touched on just briefly before. The point there is to say um, public relations is now such a major part of what government agencies do that we shouldn't think of it as a separate area of public policy. Uh, a public relations campaign is a key part of policy. It's crucial to policymaking. And a PR response is just as much of the political response as the emergency assistance. And, and what I show very carefully in the book, with great detail and, and, and I think a, a pretty compelling story, is that while the city, on the one hand, was refusing to provide backup services, backup ambulances for the people in need, it was busy mounting what would be a very effective public relations strategy to deny and deflect and to defend itself from um, everything that was happening in the week. And, and let me explain. The, the first response of the mayor to the death report, as I said, is rather than to, to um, say we've got a crisis here, let's declare an official emergency, was to actually deny that so many people were dying. Um, the mayor told the press not to blow it out of proportion. He publicly questioned the, the medical examiner's autopsy findings, which is kind of an incredible thing for a mayor to do, um, and, and did his best to literally deny that the event was taking place. Well, well, that proved to be impossible once there were so many hundreds of bodies delivered to the morgue and the refrigerated truck uh, for everyone to see. So the next move of, of the city government was to deflect responsibility. Um, so you had city administrators doing things like pinning the blame on Commonwealth Edison power had gone out for hundreds of thousands of people. Or, actually, in one case, the Commissioner of Human Services said that we're talking about people who died because they neglected to take care of themselves, kind of deflecting it and putting the, putting the blame on, 
on the on the victim rather than on the city government, which was being criticized by many at the time. And and finally, um, this campaign to defend the what the city did through um, explanations of city administrators saying, you know, we did everything we could, we did it all, our response was exactly what it what it had to be, when it was very clear that the city failed to live up even to its own standards because the city had a heat emergency plan on the books in 1995 that it never used. So what the this chapter, Governing by Public Relations, shows is the way in which actually this process of, of publicly spinning the event has, in fact, blocked the city's capacity, and I think the nation's capacity, to come to terms with what happened in Chicago in 1995. There was no city council hearing to investigate what happened internally, and the mayor's commission, which he specially appointed to study the event, published a report titled Mayor's Commission on Extreme Weather Conditions. There's no mention of, of the word heat wave. And amazingly enough, there's an image of a snowflake on the cover of that report. So there was clearly an effort to try to put out of sight what happened uh, that week to, to, to hide the, the story in the process of, of showing it. And I think that the, the public relations spin that the city did is one of the big reasons that we don't hear as much as we should about this incredible story today. We also need to talk briefly about how the media covered this. You uh, explore that in uh, a chapter called The Spectacular City, News Organizations and the Representation of Catastrophe. First of all, that's a very intriguing title for this chapter. Tell us why you called it that. Well, the, you know, the, the argument in, in this chapter is that the journalists who, who work on the story in Chicago, and there were a lot of them who did, uh, got rather transfixed by the spectacular nature of this event. You know, like I said before, heat waves typically don't come with, with many great visual images, but here with the, the dead bodies seen at the morgue and the, the conflict between the mayor and the medical examiner, this great scandal, there were, in fact, all of these rather sensational elements to, to relate to, to an audience. And so journalists got fixated on this story, and sadly, a lot of the deeper, more penetrating reporting that we might expect about why so many people died, how they died alone, um, the neighborhoods where people died alone, the problems with the city's response. Those things did not get covered by the, the major media in Chicago. In fact, the, um, the, the Chicago Tribune recognized this at the end of its reporting and, and sent out a team of reporters to do precisely the kind of uh, reporting I just described, really trying to understand the death, why they happened. And amazingly enough, by the time this team of reporters had finished its, its work, and, and, and began to compile the profile of people who died, the editors decided that uh, it was too late to run what they considered a summer story. That was their term, summer story. And they basically um, you know, trimmed the piece and, and made it far less thorough than it might otherwise have been. It was November at that time. And they meant they, they pretty much you know, buried the story, making it almost as forgettable as the event has been itself. And so the... You know, what I show, again, I think carefully in this, this chapter on the spectacular city, is the way in which uh, the local media come to terms with the disaster and tell the story in ways that, that, that don't necessarily give us the insights we need to understand the way we live and die today. And that's the reason that it was so important to do a social autopsy and to write a book that could convey this bigger story. 
If I may, I would like for you to give us your thoughts on if such a heat wave were to happen again in Chicago yet this summer or next summer, uh, do you have some sense that some lessons have been, been learned and that it would not be uh, the catastrophe that it was in 1995? Well, Greg, people always ask, can this happen again? And my response is, it already did. In 1999, another far less severe heat wave came through Chicago. Heat waves come through Chicago all the time, and many other American cities, too. And, in fact, the city has learned many things. Uh, it really knows how to do an emergency response to get those extra ambulances out, if necessary, to get people going door-to-door and checking up on older people who live alone, to have volunteers calling, to, to provide special transportation, to get people to cooling centers. And the city really does an impressive amount of stuff on hot days. But still, in 1999, more than 110 people died. That's like a plane going down. And I'm certain that none of your listeners have heard of the great Chicago heat wave of 1999. Um, no, no doubt about that. So why did all this happen, given the city's response? Well, it's because you can't just have an emergency response to the problems of what the, what the story of heat wave really shows is not just that we're vulnerable during an emergency, but also that every day in the United States, we have so many people living and dying alone, living in, in vulnerable neighborhoods. And we don't care. Kind of vulnerability, and we don't do anything about it. We address it occasionally with an emergency plan on a, on a heat wave, but in fact, it's not one of the issues that we regularly uh, feel compelled to address. And that makes us vulnerable. So the way to prevent heat wave death is, on the one hand, to have the emergency program Chicago has, but also, and crucially, it's to address the everyday vulnerability, the kind of emergency and slow motion, if you will, this invisible disaster of people living in great deprivation on their own in abandoned neighborhoods with high violent crime and an inhospitable social environment. And my view is until we're willing to address those deeper, everyday crises. We will always be vulnerable to heat waves and to the everyday suffering that we sometimes fail to recognize. The book is Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. Uh, The author is uh, Professor Eric Kleinenberg. The book is published by the University of Chicago Press. Eric Kleinenberg, a a most important book, and I'm so grateful for you uh, joining us today on the morning show uh, to talk about it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Greg.